Section 21 of The Golden Web by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter 21. Ruby is Disappointed. The solicitor hung up a silk hat, motioned his two visitors to seats, and took his accustomed place in front of his writing table. I am afraid, he said, turning toward Mr. Sarsby, but in reality addressing his niece, that your visit to town has been, in some respects, a disappointment to you, especially, he continued, bearing in mind, the letter which you, my dear young lady, have just shown me. Still, there is no getting away from facts. We have carefully examined every paper and every portion of the personal belongings of the deceased, and I am afraid that we must come to the decision that there is nothing in those effects worth taking away. It certainly seems not, Mr. Sarsby assented. I must say that from the first I have discouraged my niece and her expectations. I never knew Sinclair, but everyone spoke of him as being a shiftless and impossible sort of person. The lawyer nodded. From the state of his effects, he remarked, that seems very possible, and yet one cannot help wondering what it was that he had in mind when he wrote to your niece, what it was, too, that induced him to take rooms in a hotel like the Universal. Ruby Sinclair rose slowly to her feet. She came to the table before which the solicitor was seated, and she looked down at him with blazing eyes. "'Can't you see, you two? she exclaimed. "'Can't you understand that the man has been robbed of something? He would never have written me in that strain if he had not believed that he possessed something which was at any rate worth money, and a great deal of money, he would never, with only twenty pounds in his pocket, have gone to a hotel like the Universal, drunk champagne there, and lived as though his means were unlimited. These things are ridiculous. But, my dear young lady, the lawyer commenced, can't you see the truth, she exclaimed? My uncle was murdered. Why? What was the motive? Robbery? Do you think it was for the sake of twenty pounds or so that he had on him, and which were found untouched? The man Rowan was in South Africa with my uncle. He knew his business. It was no ordinary quarrel, this, I tell you, that Rowan robbed my uncle of something. I don't know what, but something which was the backbone of this letter, she exclaimed, dashing it upon the table. Something which justified him in staying at the Universal. Something which must be found. The lawyer nodded. That point of view, he admitted, has occurred to me, I must confess. And yet, you must remember that the man Rowan was arrested upon the premises. He had nothing with him which could by any chance have belonged to the dead man. The girl stamped her foot impatiently. Have you read the evidence at the trial? she asked. It is very clear that this man Rowan was no fool. Whatever he wanted from my uncle, he secured and disposed of before he was arrested. The last thing he would do would be to carry about with him on his person anything which he had taken from my uncle. "'What you suggest may be possible, of course,' the lawyer remarked, "'but unfortunately we have not the slightest indication of it. The man Rowan was not seen to speak to anyone in the hotel, and it is known that he did not leave it after the quarrel until his arrest.' "'And you are content to leave it like that?' the girl asked. The lawyer shrugged his shoulders. "'It is not that we are content,' he said a little stiffly, "'but there certainly seems to be no cause for any further action.' The girl turned to Mr. Sarsby. "'We had better go,' she said abruptly. 
There is nothing to be gained by staying here. The solicitor accompanied them to the door. Miss Sinclair, he said, I can sympathize with your disappointment, but I do beg you not to go looking for a mayor's nest. It is disappointing, of course, to find that your uncle was practically a pauper, especially after that letter of his, but, on the other hand, men in his position, I'm afraid, are proverbially given to exaggeration. Thank you, the girl said sharply. I think that we will not talk about this any more. Mr. Sarsby and his niece walked slowly up the little side street which led into the Strand. The former, who was sharing to some extent his niece's disappointment, found compensation in the thought of a speedy return to Rackney. I am afraid, Ruby, he said, that you are very much disappointed, and it seems to me that we have wasted our railway fares to London. It can't be helped. We may as well make the best of it and get back at once. I can see no reason why we should not catch the three o'clock train. I shall be able to play my match then with Colonel Fawcett tomorrow morning. You can go and play your match if you want to, the girl answered. I am going to stay in London. To stay in London, Mr. Sarsbury repeated. I mean it, the girl answered. I don't mean to be robbed. I mean to stay here and find out why this man Rowan quarreled with my uncle and what my uncle meant when he wrote to me about a fortune. You go back if you like, she continued. Give me five pounds to stay here with, and I'll come back when I've found out the truth. Mr. Sarsbury was aghast. He looked at his niece with wide open eyes. What had come to her that she should speak of such a sum as five pounds almost carelessly? I shall do nothing of the sort, he answered decidedly, nor shall I allow you to stay up here alone. A most improper proceeding, I should call it, quite unheard of. We will go back to the hotel, pay our bill, have a little lunch at an ABC shop, and catch the three o'clock train home. If you won't let me have the five pounds, she answered, all right, good-bye. She turned abruptly away, and before his astonished eyes, plunged into the stream of traffic, making for the other side of the street. He followed her as soon as he saw a safe opening and found her on the point of entering a small restaurant. "'My dear Ruby,' he exclaimed sharply, "'you're mad. How dared you leave me like that?' She shrugged her shoulders. "'I have been mad,' she answered, "'to live that awful life down at Rackney for these last few years. I have had enough of it, Uncle. I am here, and I'm going to stay here.' If I can't succeed in what I'm going to undertake, I shall try and find some work. Mr. Sarsby gasped. It was a wholly unexpected revolt. You mean to say that you don't want to come back to Rackney? Never, if I can help it, the girl answered. I hate the place. I hate the life. I'm tired, sick to death of it all, she cried passionately. And I would as soon come up here and live for a week or two, and then throw myself into the Thames as to go on with it any longer. If you won't let me have the five pounds, she continued, I have enough jewelry which will fetch me about that. The money would only mean a week or two longer. But where would you live, he exclaimed. What would you do? That is my affair, she answered simply. First of all, though, I should go to Mr. Dean, and I should ask him to help me. Any man of common sense would agree with me at once in believing that my uncle was robbed. But your aunt, Mr. Sarsby exclaimed weakly, my aunt can get on very well without me, the girl declared. Mr. Sarsby felt that a situation had arisen with which he was unable to cope. 
The only thing that occurred to him to do was to temporize. You'll have to come back to the hotel, he said, to get your luggage. We will talk it over on the way there. Just as you please, the girl answered carelessly. Only so far as I'm concerned, there is nothing to talk over. Mr. Sarsby hailed a bus, which deposited them presently within a few yards of the semi-private hotel in Montague Street, at which they were staying. It was one of those establishments which, from being a small boarding-house, had blossomed out into a hotel, with all the outward signs of its more prosperous rivals. There was an entrance hall, a reception office, and two long-limbed giants in light blue livery, who spoke every language except their own. The people who frequented were either Americans or people from the isolated country places, such as Mr. Sarsby and his niece. "'I'm not going to talk anything over until I've had some lunch,' the girl declared. "'We need not go out. It is only eighteen pence each here. You can afford that, especially as you are probably going to be rid of me forever.' Mr. Sarsby frowned. "'We will lunch here if you prefer it,' he said. "'I'm not aware that I have hesitated at anything on the score of expense.' The girl laughed. There was a note in her mirth which was strange to Mr. Sarsby. He relinquished his well-worn silk hat to a boy in buttons, straightened his old-fashioned tie before a passing mirror, and led the girl into the dining-room. The size of the apartment, the number of the waiters, the indefinable sense of being in a great city, which had oppressed him ever since the train had rolled into the terminus on his arrival, once more had its effect upon him. He felt sure that his niece understood nothing of what she was talking about. He drank bottled beer with his lunch, and soon summoned up courage to reopen the matter. "'It was a very good idea of yours, my dear Ruby,' he said, to lunch here. "'I am sure that for the money it is a most excellent meal.' She gave vent to a little interjection which might have meant anything. If he had not been so sure that she was unused to such magnificence, he would have believed that it was intended to indicate a certain amount of contempt at her entertainment. And now, Mr. Sarsby continued, let me speak to you seriously. This suggestion, that there had been anything of mirth from which Mr. Sarsby desired to lead the way, appealed to the girl's sense of humor. Her lips parted, and the sullen discontent of her face was for a moment lightened. Very well, she said, let us be serious, go on. Tell me what you have to say. What I want to put before you is briefly this, he declared. You do not understand the impossibility of a young girl barely twenty years old, with your, he coughed a little, personal attractions, being left alone in London. Of course it is difficult for me to explain to you exactly what I mean. You needn't, the girl interrupted contemptuously. Do you think that I am a fool? I know all about those risks which people speak about with bated breath, and I should like you to know that I am quite able to take care of myself. I am not afraid, so I do not know why anyone need be afraid for me. Mr. Sarsby looked at her and wondered where amongst the wastes and windswept places of his lonely home had the girl acquired the knowledge which she alluded to so scornfully. Had she learned, too, he reflected, to carry herself as she had done since their arrival, with an ease and assurance which he had tried in vain to emulate. He realized at that moment that all further argument would be wasted. 
Nevertheless, he continued to ease his conscience. You may know a good deal, he said, or think you do. Girls nowadays read and talk of most surprising things. But London is not a safe place for a young girl, whatever you may say, especially a young girl without enough money to live on. I suppose, she said, laughing at him openly, that Ranky is a safe place. Well, I've tried it for a good many years, and I've had enough. You needn't be afraid, she continued, that I shall return to Rankney in the guise of a prodigal daughter. If I don't succeed in tracing Richard Sinclair's fortune, I shall find something else to do. If you will give me the five pounds I ask for, it will make things easier. If not, I shall get on without it. He felt that he was being weak. Even his conscience told him that greater firmness was necessary. And yet he recognized something in the girl's demeanor which assured him absolutely that any protests were hopeless. There was a hidden strength there, shared by neither her aunt nor himself, something which kept her apart from them, which made him half believe, in spite of himself, that what she had set herself to do she would accomplish. At least, he said, we must know where you're going to live. There's no need for you to stay in London, she answered, while I look about for a room. I know exactly the sort of place I'm going to take. I'm going out in the tube to one of the suburbs, where a bedroom is not very expensive, and I shall take my meals out. It will cost me very little to live, and five pounds will go a long way. By the time it is spent, I think that I shall have discovered something. I will not write you for any more money, I promise. Mr. Sarsby sighed. I suppose you must have your own way, he said. I don't know what your aunt will say. She laughed. They had finished their luncheon and had risen from the table. Enough about my aunt, she said. She will have all the anxiety of her preserves upon her mind directly, and I think she will be glad not to be bothered with me. You can catch the three o'clock train and play your golf match tomorrow. I suppose I may as well, he said weakly, although I can never putt after a railway journey. Go and try anyhow, she answered. We will say good-bye to one another here, if you don't mind. The porter will take care of my luggage until I have taken my room. I suppose if I were to stay up with you for a few days, he began. Please, uncle, don't, she began firmly. It isn't any use. You have been kind to me in your way, but the life at Rankney is horrible to me. I have made up my mind to have no more of it. You've done your best for me. You can't do more. Goodbye. There's your bag, and you haven't too much time to catch the three o'clock train. Take the first turn to the left from here, and book the King's Cross by the tube. Goodbye. Mr. Sarsbury picked up his bag and departed without any further protest. The girl stood upon the steps and watched him, and as she watched, some of the darkness seemed to pass away from her face. He disappeared around the corner. She was alone, free at any rate. She drew a long breath, and the dull streets and gray sky seemed suddenly to have become like the walls and canopy of a new paradise. End of section 21